that since we are going to work with ritual this afternoon, that when this hall was built, because we're in a class five earthquake zone, it has a good bit of steel around it, but in order to um, build it properly, um, there are uh, 30 pillars that go down about 35 or 40 feet into the earth that would drill down into the stone under here. And before the pillars were poured, um, at the bottom of each is a big round stone that was covered in gold leaf or gold um, and then inscribed with uh, prayers in Pali and English and blessings um, and then placed at the bottom with some chants so that when the pillars were poured that this would rest on the prayers of a whole group of people who came here to sing and to chant. So there's a kind of nice ground under us. The other thing which is kind of fun to say is that the first sound that the first teachings and, and sounds that happened in this room, the day before it opened, they took all this scaffolding down that was really looked beautiful. And then a, a bunch of guys, young men mostly, that I'd been working with in another context, were out at Point Reyes, a couple of vans pulled into Spirit Rock, and they were full of African drums. These were guys from Oakland and, and uh, East Los Angeles and Watts who'd been learning drumming. And so they said, hey, this looks like a good space to chant and drum. Can we sing in here? I said, sure. You know, the bands pulled up. All these drums came out. And so there was this beautiful African song that was set, set of songs that were sung in this room to, to open it. So here you are beginning this adventure of carrying the lamp of the Dharma, the lamp of freedom, the lamp of liberation, of awakening, that's been carried for centuries, millennia, and yet it's always renewed, and it's renewed through you. It's renewed through each person, each individual, um, who understands and then offers it to the world through their voice and their life. As you can see on the altar, there are a lot of pictures of ancestors within our lineage. In particular, there's Ajahn Chah and Mahasi Sayadaw and Deepa Ma Baru and Aung San Suu Kyi and Sharon Salzberg and Ruth Dennison and um, Uba Kin and Goenka and Buddha Dasa, Ajahn Man, all these guys, some of them looking happier than others, some look kind of stern, but they'll get over it maybe next life if they're lucky, you know. Um, but what they carry is each one of them is a voice of freedom. Um, uh, I was in Burma leading a trip a year and a half ago or so to bring some hundreds of thousands of dollars that we gathered to build clinics and schools, especially after this huge cyclone, Cyclone Nargis. And on our trip, it was, uh, was really important. We had 15 of us. Alice Walker came along. There were some literary figures that came and activists that we not be political at all. We kind of got together as a group. And I said, you, you cannot talk about politics even in private while we're in Burma, even though there's the worst horrible military dictatorship and, you know, more child soldiers than any other country in the world and genocide toward the tribal people and just terrible things. But because if anyone hears you talk about politics, the people that we're trying to help will be in danger and they could be thrown in prison and tortured, which happens regularly there. So you simply can't do it. So we were going around as tourists, you know, doing 
our service work. It was really beautiful. Um, and one day I was going from one part of Rangoon to a temple in a taxi, and I noticed in the taxi that um, the guy on his visor has an Obama bumper sticker. <laughs> so I think, okay, this guy's probably pretty cool. Nobody else is in the taxi. And so I take a chance and I say, um, I see your Obama bumper sticker. He says, Obama, you know, you can hear that all around the world um, better than this country, I'm sorry to say. But anyway, and um, so we talked for a little bit, and then I said, I have to ask you a question. How come I've been traveling in Burma, no one mentions Aung San Suu Kyi? Don't, they just don't mention her. Have people forgotten her? And the minute I said her, her, her name, his eyes got wide, like he was really frightened. And he kind of looked around. Um, and then he said, we never say her name. Danger. Never say her name. Never hear. And then he turned around and we were at a traffic light. Put his hands here, he said, but always here. Never hear. But always here. And it's as if he was saying that this woman who's just my age, mid-60s, and small and um, kind of just, uh, you know, in some ways, this little woman, um, physically, she could leave Burma anytime she wanted. Um, the military government said, you're free to leave, except that if you leave, you can't come back. So she didn't leave when her husband died of cancer, when her children graduated university. Um, and instead, she's been under house arrest for 17 years, Nobel Prize. Um, in, and she says simply, I will not go, and I will not hate you. I will not go, and I will not hate you, but I will stay. And by virtue of her being there, even though people don't speak her name, the spirit that she carries of metta and liberation and the, the vision of, of freedom for her people um, is enough to carry the spirit and to awaken the spirit for 50 million people in Burma. It's like Nelson Mandela walking out of Robben Island prison after 27 years with such magnanimity and graciousness and dignity um, and beauty to change not just South Africa but much of the world. Or my teacher Mahagosananda after all 19 members of his family were killed to walk over and over as a, again nominated three times for the Nobel Prize um, chanting the Metta Sutra through the uh, minefields and carry with processions of people chanting metta and walking them back to their village. He said, you can't go back by bus. You can't go back by car. You have to take each step and bless this land with loving kindness. And only then will you feel that you're safe back at home. Um, so there is a, a lamp of liberation that's been carried in all these different forms for thousands of years. And the Buddha says in the Sutta Nipata, not merit or good deeds or virtue or concentration and uh, purification of mind or wisdom or insight is the purpose of the Dharma, but the sure heart's release. This and this alone is the purpose of the teachings of the Blessed One.
sometimes, well, let's keep track of time here. Um, the invitation then is to give voice to or carry to those that you teach and care for um, a kind of freedom. Someone put it this way. They said, the question is not the future of humanity, but the presence of eternity. A kind of freedom of spirit that is independent of the circumstances of a person's life. And it doesn't mean that we don't have to tend to the circumstances or to injustice or, or care for the world, but there's a freedom of spirit that is the birthright of every human being, their own true nature, their own Buddha nature. And the invitation you give is to shift from entanglement and fear and confusion and greed and hatred to this liberation that the Buddha taught for 45 years as he wandered the dusty roads of India to every person that he met. He would say, there is freedom that you can find anyone that wanted to speak with him. Or there is, you could say, there's a home for you. Ajahn Chah called it your true home. That until you find your true home, you wander um, lost. Um, because the outer things of the world don't make the true home. The true home has to be when you come home to your own dignity and freedom and compassion, your own Buddha nature. Just as a capable physician, says in the Anguttara Nikaya, might instantly cure a patient who is in pain and seriously ill, so also, my friends, whatever one hears of the Buddha's Dharma, be it discourses, mixed prose, explanations, marvelous statements, teachings and methods and practices, skillful means, one sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief and despair will vanish. Just as if there were a beautiful pond with a pleasant shore, its water being clear, agreeable, cool, transparent, and a man or woman came by scorched and exhausted by the heat, fatigued, parched, thirsty, and they would step into the pond and bathe and drink, and thus all their plight and fatigue and feverishness would be allayed. So too, dear friends, whenever one hears or expounds the blessings of the Dharma, discourses, prose, explanations, practices, skillful means, all one's plight, fatigue, and the feverishness of the heart are allayed. Now the world needs medicine, no question about it. We live in the Kali Yuga, or <clears throat> in those of you who <clears throat> live in the USA, we could just say we live at the end of empire. Um, and it's clear that no amount of computers and internet and <coughs> bioscience and all the development of the technological world can save us from continuing environmental degradation, warfare, racism, uh, tribalism, um, destruction of the earth and species. We need to live in a different way as human beings. And the teachings of the Dharma are teachings for the individual, but also for the collective. 
that it's possible to live in a different way. It's also hard. This from James Baldwin. I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hate and prejudice so stubbornly is they sense once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with their own pain. And so we as a culture or individuals project our pain onto somebody else. You know, the Muslims are the enemy du jour. It was the communists or the, you know, whatever was before it, the Japanese or the Italians or the Irish or the African Americans. Or it's also the immigrants now are the enemy. And it doesn't matter. But what we can't bear, we put on another. So in this time, we really need medicine. We need the medicine that gives people the capacity to bear witness to the unbearable beauty and the ocean of tears that make up humanity from the place of knowing, to become the one who knows, to become the Buddha. And your invitation is both to have found this in your own way, in yourself, and then to carry this, not because you're supposed to or you're going to be some grand thing, but really out of love. It's just like seeing your kids, you know, suffering. You, you want to help them, your family, your brothers, your sisters. So you become the one who knows, <coughs> not in some grandiose way, but there's a trust of being, of dharma, that then people say, what is it that you have where you can stay centered in the midst of this chaos or this suffering? How do we bear this? How do we tend it? How do we find freedom? So let me stop now for a moment. We are going to do our rituals, but I want to ask you some questions first. Why did I start the way that I did? Here I've been yakking away, right? <clears throat> and I started with stories, Aung San Suu Kyi. I had other stories, but I didn't have enough time to tell them. Chanting started, you know, um, well, Tanisra started by invoking you coming into your bodies as you listen to the chant, um, uh, reading a poem, just pedagogically for a moment. Any thoughts you have about why I began the way that I did or what did you notice? Just a few things. Inspiration, thank you. One, two. What about the discursive mind? To relax the discursive mind? To, to make a connection, <coughs> to come into the heart. Something happening bigger than us. You are being brought home. Thank you. So the holding place and bringing home. And all of these are, are beautiful observations. Um, what I wanted to do was exactly wh what you said, was to invite people to feel home, to make some sense of safety, let yourself be at ease, come into your body, and if Tanisra hadn't said it, I would have said it. Um, I told the stories 
um, that had some emotion in them, like the Aung San Suu Kyi story, so that you could feel that it was safe to open your heart and to feel some emotion. Um, I talked about the lineage um, so that I opened the space of time from time to timeless. Um, uh, that visionary space, if you will, or the inspiration. Um, it's the creation of sacred space. I talked about, you know, war and racism and read um, James Baldwin so that people would feel they had a place in this room, that it would feel safe, that, okay, I belong in this place because the things that matter to me are named. Does that, do you understand this? So in the course of 15 minutes, it was somehow to bring body and feelings and mind and vision um, to bring the sense of community or home and also to invite the, the suffering and the beauty that are here in people to say there's a place for all of your being in this room. And it's not that you got, you're going to imitate me. You're going to find your own way to do it. And you know, I've been doing this for a long time. So you learn, it's a certain art in a, in a way. But um, this, is, this is part of what we want to do in this training, is not only to teach you things, but to show you, so you find your own way, to show you ways that you can invite and make, as someone said, a connection with others and with a group. Now, I'm tremendously happy to see you, because you are the future of the Dharma. And it's fabulous. You know, you're... You, the Dharma is going to be in your good hands. Now, you might be sitting there and saying, moi, you know, as Miss Piggy would say, my hands, I've got to carry this Dharma. Um, but in fact, you're here because of your dedication. And to be a teacher is a real honor. Now, I was in the airport in Florida some years ago, and this guy came up to me in Miami airport, and he said, hey, Jack, he'd see, you know, do you remember me? I said, I sort of remember his face. He said, I sat the three-month course with you in 79 at IMS. <laughs> okay, all right. He said, and I didn't practice much, you know, after that. I kind of went and built a business and did other things. But last year, last year I had a heart attack, you know, and I needed open-heart surgery, and when I was in the hospital and they were wheeling me to the surgery, even though I hadn't meditated much in all these years, it all came back and I knew how to find my breath and center myself and open. He said, and I'm so grateful for my practice because when I really needed it, it was there. Thank you. Um, so it's an amazing honor. You give things to people. You don't even know what's going to happen with them, but it's like you're giving them the key to the, to the, to the, gate that opens into the, you know, blessed garden, or you're giving the key out of the prison into a place of freedom. So it's an honor to do it, and, and it, it really makes one happy. It's also a practice, because as you get yourself in the role of teaching and offering dharma, sometimes it's hard, sometimes you feel insecure, sometimes you get embarrassed because the words sound good and you know how far your own life is from those words. <laughs> And so it becomes, that's a horrible feeling, by the way. I've had it often. <laughs> it is. It is because you're saying all this great stuff, and you go, ooh, but I'm not really doing it. And that's why it's a practice, because as you do it, you're actually talking to you-know-who, right? <laughs> Most importantly, you're talking to yourself, and you're reminding yourself, this is what I know. 
this is what I most deeply value. And so it becomes literally a practice. And you don't feel good and you want to teach and you don't want to and you're tired and you have a headache and whatever. And then they're all sitting there waiting for you. You've got your class and you have to somehow find in the midst of the changing circumstances the capacity to say something that allays the fever, you know, that makes that cool water that the Buddha spoke of for people, that, that brings a gift to those. And when you do, it turns out that it brings a gift to you as well. So it's an honor. It's a tremendous, one of the most beautiful things you can do as a human being. It's a practice. And you start to think, oh, my teachers, they were better. They were wiser. I think that anyway, these guys, you know, and gals, they were. But, you know, you just work with what you got. That's all you can do. Um, <laughs> it's, it's an honor, it's a practice, and it's a love affair. And all the aspects of a love affair. And she can be very difficult sometimes, but she's absolutely worth it. Now, little questions for you. Some reflections we'll do. We'll do our first ritual. Um, what for you is freedom? What for you is liberation? Or what for you is awakening. Here you are, you will be carriers of the lamp of the Dharma. You will be bringing people back, as someone said, back to their, their own home, to the home of their kind of unshakableness in their own being. And there's the story of Deepama being on the airplane flying to the U.S. to come teach at IMS some years ago with a friend who brought her from India. And the airplane hit a big air pocket and dropped a thousand feet and then stopped, you know, every, there was all these screams in the airplane and so forth because it's kind of scary, um, including my friend who was with Deepama. And Deepama just sat very quietly and the, it stopped and, and, and um, she, she, you know, very calmly she turned to the, the, the woman who was bringing from India and said quite simply, the daughters of the Buddha are fearless. And to be fearless doesn't mean you don't have fear. It just means that you know that that's not the whole story. That there's a place of knowing in you that even when fear arises, that's just fear. That's just part of the dance of the mind. But there's some space of awareness and openness of heart, of compassion that knows even that. That's just fear. That's just our human life. So what is liberation for you? You know? And freedom. Is it the freedom of virtue, sila, to not harm other beings, the freedom of integrity? Is it the freedom of samadhi, of quieting the mind and opening this to silence so you can see in this world without the madness clearly? Is it the freedom of metta and compassion? Is it the freedom of wisdom, selflessness, mystery? Wisdom says, I am nothing. Love says, I am everything. Between these two, my life flows. O nobly born, says the Buddha, remember who you really are. Remember your own true nature. So here's the reflection. Sit quietly for a couple minutes. Um, actually, I want, well, before you do it, there's some pads of paper there and pencils. Would a couple of people or a few people scatter those pads around the room? Take three or four pages, because we're going to need. You're going to need three or four pages of paper, 
and then pass a pad to somebody else near you. Um, send the pads back to the back of the room and then start passing them back. And, and then pencils too. If it, does anybody not have pen or pencil? Okay, so send the pencils over that way. And while these are being passed out, again, take three or four pages it, and then pass, the, pass it to people near you. Pass them back. We're going to do just three or four minutes reflection and then get in small groups. Who doesn't have? What do you need? Paper or pen? Pencils. Okay, they'll come that way. Pencils in that corner. Anybody else not have? All right. So the rest you can just put down on the, on the floor. You don't have to put it anywhere. You just leave it right where you are and sit back down. And so here's your reflections. There are three. First question. I'd like you to reflect for a, 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 a minute or two on the most important teachers in your life. Those teachers, and don't write this down on your little paper. I just want you to think and reflect and consider. And bring to mind the most important teachers of your life, those who really blessed you, taught you, inspired you, and when you've thought of these teachers, then write their names on one of these pieces of paper. Say it louder. Buddhist oh, Buddhist and non-Buddhist. Absolutely. I didn't imagine that it was just Buddhist, but thank you for that, Eugene. Spare you. You don't have to be <coughs> parochial or Catholic or whatever, uh, or Catholic in the small c sense. Very broad, whatever you like. All, so think of the teachers. Yeah. No, a whole bunch on one page. The other pages will be for other things. Write down the names of the teachers that have blessed you, inspired you, touched you. And it doesn't have to be exhaustive that you have every teacher you've ever met. You know, 
three, six, eight, ten, whatever is fine. Now a second part of the reflection. Take a moment and visualize or remember what most helped you from these teachers. What was it, how was it that they affected you? Maybe you can visualize especially one particular moment that stands out as you write these names down of something that made a big difference, had an import in your life. Or maybe there'll be more than one, a couple. How did they do this? Whether they inspired or awakened Now a third reflection, having written down the name of some important teachers, having visualized a moment or, or two or more of how that teaching touched you, what happened. The third reflection, taking it yet deeper into yourself into the one who knows, is what is the realization, the understanding, the love, the liberation, whatever you want to call it, that you most want to transmit to others? What have you learned that you most want to, want to carry to someone else? And you don't have to write it, but just think about it. All the paper has to say is the names of the teachers. The rest of these are just your reflections. What is the realization, the understanding, the beauty, the freedom, the dharma that you most want someone else to understand? To transmit, to pass on. Now I would invite you to make triads, to turn to two other people and to just take uh, a minute or two apiece, so we'll take no more than five minutes total, to share um, especially the second and third thing, um, the moment or the image of what really touched you as a teacher, or from your teachers that inspired you or awakened you 
and what it is that you most hope to carry to others. So find, find two other people. You can do it. I know you can. If you don't have a third person or you're looking, stand up and put your hand in the air. If, there, if you're extra, stand up, not just hand in the air. Stand up, turn in a circle, keep your hand in the air, and look for other people. There's one there. Turn in a circle, look for other hands up. That's Okay, so join, join them. And cho- Who doesn't have still? Anybody not have three? All right. There could be four or, or, or pairs if you need to. Go ahead. So just in just a you know a minute or two apiece. Go ahead, please. Again, what you're sharing is the second two reflections. Some moment of what inspired or awakened you that you remembered and what it is that you most want to transmit or pass on.
So finish up. Make sure everybody had a little chance. Maybe we could get a couple or a few people to say out loud either what image came to them of transmission from teacher in some fashion or other or what it is that you most want to pass on. Um, and uh, so if, if a couple or a few people would be willing to share. What? Yeah, yeah, take the mic. Uh, three people that were connected in a particular way that inspired me were, were Thoreau and Gandhi and Martin Luther King. And I think their stories and lives are especially poignant because in some sense they were separated in space and time where they happened to have a chance to meet each other. They were in different countries and different faiths. And so, uh, but they expressed something with a singular voice and it had such a huge impact. Thank you. I think what my teachers um, shared with me was a real passion for truth. They, they didn't teach it. They modeled it. And the, the insight I got as I reflected on what was it that I got or what did they do they saw in me the capacity to also see the passion for truth. It's like, wow. And they did it in a very caring way. But they saw, they saw the possibility in me to also have that, which I, I had never thought about in that manner. So thank you. Thank you. A couple more. Uh, the first two names uh, that popped into my head were the names of my daughters, mm. um, which is not like me. And I, in thinking about it, it's because I love them so much and I care for them so much. And it's through that that I've had to learn so much. So they've just been um, amazing teachers. Mm. Thank you. So now you have to have a whole lot more children, right? <laughs> so I, I, d I don't want to name one teacher. There's, I have so many teachers because I've lived a long time. So I have a lot of teachers. And um, I think this, uh, there's a heart-to-heart -heart connection. It's the what we oftentimes call um, uh, and empathy, um, limbic resonance, you know, like that. That's, those are the phrases we call that kind of deep being with another person. 
And with the other person, you know, I had felt so loved and cared for and a wish for my happiness. And express yourself, express yourself, express yourself. And, um, and I've needed to hear that over and over. I still need to hear that. And so I'd like to be able to express that to the people that I'm with. Hmm. And um, I hope to do that more and more. Thank you. That's good. We'll stop with this because we've got other things to do. But as we stop, I want you to also pause for a moment and notice how you are and how this room has been for you in the half an hour or hour since we've been together. How was it to name your teachers to yourself or to someone else? How was it to reflect on what had touched you or what you want to carry or to hear that from others? Inspiring, opening. Thank you. So learning to touch that, which you care about most deeply in yourself, and then sharing that, making that connection. So in some way, we've started through this very simple process of our own quiet reflection and then sharing of connecting from that deep place. And it changes the room. People start to feel more comfortable, more at home in some way. And so what what we've started to do really is to work with a very simple ritual. Um, the ritual was in this case reflection and writing down and I'm just going to talk about ritual a little bit um, and we'll do a lot more training with ritual later on Um, but this will just give you some of the flavors of it Uh, some and because you'll need rituals at some point and we'll talk about rituals for weddings and funerals and baby blessings and you know how to work with other kinds of circumstances Um, uh, but I was uh, working with some colleagues and good friends Luis Rodriguez Maladoma Somme who's a a West African medicine man Luis is a wonderful poet from uh, East Los Angeles Michael Mead and after a whole week of leading a men's retreat that included a number of young men from inner cities getting out of gangs and so forth we decided to do a Um, procession uh, in one of the neighborhoods where there'd been a lot of gang violence and so we got permission to close the street and to have a mile of the street and and use this park and we went to this place and the young men had made masks and they had these staffs that they'd made and we'd done all night sweat lodges and initiations and going under the stream in the middle of the dark night in the forest and taking a new name and kind of finding some nobility in people who had never been seen in that way before, and songs and poetry. Anyway, when we were ready, we were chanting and singing and um, drumming African drums down the street in this neighborhood that was an immigrant neighborhood. 
Um, and it was kind of relatively poor apartments. And as we were going down the street, chanting and singing away um, and dancing, the blinds started to open, the doors cracked open, the windows, you know, which had all been closed, and people looked out. And in this neighborhood, there were people from Laos and Guatemala and, you know, um, from Sudan and um, from uh, Philippines and all over the world. And we kept saying, come on, come on, you know, with gesture, come on. And they came out, you know, because we were drumming and processing and masks and, and staffs and dancing and all this stuff. And pretty soon, we, there's a whole huge community of people, and we went down to the park. And at the park, we had set a great archway that we created out of these redwood bowers and flowers. And at each arch, um, at the base of the arch, there were four young men, an African-American and a Latino and an um, Asian-American and a Caucasian, European-American. It wasn't a Native American that I remember. Anyway, and as you walked in, they bowed to you and they offered you a candle, one of these tea candles. And in the middle of the park, there was this big table that we'd set, and we had a big candle and some flowers as a kind of an altar. And it didn't matter what language they spoke. They knew what to do. They took the candle, they walked in, they lit it, they made a prayer, and then we had food to share and music, and they sat down. And everybody knew it, it because in a way, ritual is the oldest language, even before words. It's, and um, there is in your, your packet, you'll see, or uh, you took it when you came in, the yellow page, which I don't want you to study right now, but I'll just tell you about it. It says Theravada rituals on it. Um, and when we get to really learning about rituals, it has some of the simplest elements of um, fire, lighting candles or incense or um, a fire in which you throw things, a purification fire, you know, or, or air, which is sound, chants and uh, blessings and, and um, calling in the angels and the devas, or, or, or earth, where you bury things in the earth or you use stone, um, uh, um, vows, blessing cords, yantras, they're all different kinds of things, but they're very, very simple, and they're similar from, it doesn't matter whether it's Latin America or Africa or Asia or Australia or, or, or Europe. These are an ancient language, and people resonate with them. So that in this room, during a two-month retreat, there was a woman seated here whose daughter, whose teenage daughter had died from suicide. Uh, the year before. It was the first time she'd come on retreat, on a long retreat. She just needed to. That day came around a year and it fell on the retreat and she said, I don't know what to do. I have to have some, something to mark my daughter's death. Um, we were all sitting in here and I said, I'd like to invite you to go outside to that bell and to ring the bell 108 times as if to honor her and as if you could speak to her with each ring also offer a prayer, a blessing, a word to her. And so people were sitting, they'd been sitting for a couple of weeks or a few weeks, and she went outside and she began to whack that bell really loud, you know, and weep as she did it, as you could only imagine, a mother. And I told the people in the room why she was doing it, because it's not usual to sit here and have the bell rung all those times. Um, and you could feel somehow her connection to her daughter, both the, the tear 
of the loss of a child and the love and the longing in the sound of the bell. And at the same time, everybody in the room understood it. It didn't take a lot of language. You, you hear what I'm saying? So what we're talking about a little bit are the most simple elements that touch people. Um, and those are the building blocks of ritual. And you'll see in, in spiritual life and in religion, there's a sort of esoteric and exoteric level. That is, you go to Burma or Thailand or India or Sri Lanka, where our Theravada Buddhism comes from, Cambodia, and the temples are filled with a riot of colors and paintings and incense and chanting and prayers and blessings and merit-making um, and so forth. And the meditation part, if you're lucky, 5% of the monks meditate. I'm serious. They don't, you know, would you say? You're lucky, maybe 2%. Um, so the part we do, actually, is sort of the weird part, right? But it's the esoteric. But mostly, it's ritual and its community, and its love, and its devotion, and so forth. You could say it a different way. There's a popular level. Then there's a kind of rational level. Read Stephen Batchelor, you know, meditation, mindfulness, stress reduction, changes everything. Not religious, but just the transformation of, of the nervous system and the way of awakening. But then there's a transcendent level in which you realize, yes, that popular level is there, and the rational level, but there's something mysterious and and myst my mystical. Truly, we, we live with mysteries too marvelous to understand. How grass can be nourishing in the mouth of lambs, how rivers and stones are forever in allegiance with gravity, while we ourselves dream of rising. How two hands touch and the bonds will never be broken. And how people come from the light or the scars of damage to the comfort of a simple poem. Let me keep my distance from those who think they have the answers and keep company always with those who say, look and laugh in astonishment and bow their heads. That's from Mary Oliver. I was a bride married to amazement is her line. And somehow in the transcendent, um, when, it, when we open and realize that which is vast and timeless, that's not just our small self, um, Healing takes place, liberation. And from this, then you go all the way back to get integrated with the ritual and the popular, and you can't even make a separation. When somebody goes into a temple and bows and makes a prayer in Thailand and lights a stick of incense that their child will get into a good school, it's beautiful. And it's not lower or higher class than any other. It's just the dharma of the heart looking for something you know, to alleviate suffering and to have goodness come. And you start to see that beauty on every level. So you don't want to make the Dharma too prissy, sacrosanct. I don't know if that's a politically correct word anymore, but too precious. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I saw the Dalai Lama do this whole ceremony, um, big ceremony and lots of chanting and hoopla and reading texts and monks and so forth. And in the, minute, in the middle of it, some monk raised his hand in Tibet, and then they went back and forth, the Dalai Lama talking to him. And, and, and then he starts laughing and slapping his knees, and, and I'm waiting, like, what's the joke? And finally, Tubden Jimpa says, as the translator, he says, oh, we skipped a whole section. And the Dalai Lama's just <laughs> laughing. And so they go back, and they start again. And it's not like 
this is not something you can't, it's not you have to do it in the right way and not make mistakes. It's not about that. It's about ease and loving people and saying, here we are in this mystery and, you know, let's light a candle. Let's sit quiet, quiet the heart. Let's open, you know, quiet the mind. Let's open the heart. Let's connect with one another. And the mistakes are part of it. You need chaos for a ritual. If you don't have a little chaos, then you can't have something new get born. Or you need boredom. You say, this is going to be boring. Sit with it. Boredom is something people are frightened of in this culture. Let's do something boring for a while. And maybe you'll get deeper and more present and more alive. So um, next little ritual. I'm probably going to use up my time. And I had all these rituals we were going to do. Sprinkling water. They said, well, we'll get to what we get to. You know how it goes. Okay. I want to invite you um, to uh, come up here. And this is how we're going to do it. Um, is uh, I'll invite your, your beloved teachers here, um, Larry and Tanisra and Eugene and Gina and James as well, to stand over here at this end of the stage. I'll take my stuff down for a moment, or at least clear it off a little bit. And what I want to invite you to do is this. I want to invite you to take your piece of paper that you have and just file one by one. Um, and we want to do this with some you know, relatively quickly, it's not to linger a lot. Let me see if this works. Namo tatsa bhagavato arahato sama samputasa Namo tatsa bhagavato arahato sama samputasa Namo tatsa bhagavato arahato sama samputasa Invite you um, to come maybe row by row. Um, if you would take that tray of candles, you, you all, um, and get a candle. You can each take some, some of those candles. Get a candle from one of your teachers and walk up here with it, with your paper, the names of your teachers. Light your little tea candle and place it on here with that paper underneath it. And as you do, not lingering because there's a lot of us, as you do, set it down with your intention of what it is that you want to carry that you just spoke about to, um, as a teacher to others. So um, uh, the, this side, first row, you all can stand up. Um, maybe we, should we chant while they do it? What do you think? Or should I put on a chant? You want to chant? We should chant. Tanisra, do you want to lead a chant? Do what? Okay, and we'll do them over and over. Okay. You too. Oh, okay. Buddha, Buddha.
Sangha, Sangha, Sangha. 
Oh, no. 
How's it look? Doesn't it? Those are beautiful. And you could feel the chaos, right, in the beginning. But it, it was okay, and they were giggling over there. But it didn't matter. When you stood up there, and you brought the names of your teachers and your aspiration, and you lit your candle and saw all the pictures of the lineage of carriers of the Dharma, it touches you. It just does. Um, and it was beautiful to watch, really beautiful to see you. And we'll leave this here, maybe not the candles lit all week, but the, you know, the images and the words and the aspirations and the names of the teachers. Um, how are you? How does this feel? Any feedback, sense, going through this simple ritual? Yeah, please. It says, feel really connected and honored. Do you want to turn that on? You can do a few more. Anyone else? Comments, how it was, what you noticed, what you learned? I feel privileged and tender. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you. I'm aware of how ritual really, it's been spoken to already, really anchors us, like in who we really are and what's really important. And I'm noticing at the beginning of this training, but also for any time one is teaching, it it wards off doubt or who am I to teach or who am I to sit and awaken? (laughs) Who am I to be on this path? The unworthiness that's so endemic Hmm. and it feels like that's absent and that's beautiful. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. One more. really connected to everyone and we've been in silence and I'd wanted to connect so much with you guys last night through using words but sharing our breath and that song just softened my heart and I feel like I feel you in the way that I had that grasping with words last night yeah thank you thank you so you just get a sense of the flavor of this ancient language of ritual which really opens a sacred space And partly to speak to that, the second to the last comment about unworthiness, in India, when you go to a temple, um, one of the jobs in the temple is of the temple pujari. And the temple pujari basically is the person who cares for the temple. They sweep it and clean it, and they take out... um, People bring offerings and food and things like that for the altar... And, you know, they take the food out when it needs to be cleaned and, or, you know, they change the, the flowers and the, the things that make it beautiful. They warm the place. They cool it if it's hot. Um, and they're really the guardians of the sacred. Um, and in a funny way, it's a modest job. It's not like, oh, I get to sit in front of everybody and be the great wise one. But you become the shepherds and the stewards of something that you know is greater than yourself. So you don't have to be, you know, magnificent. 
Um, when I teach and I start to feel nervous or unworthy, which I don't so much anymore. I don't know, maybe that's a problem. But anyway, we'll leave that, <laughs> leave that aside. Um, but, it, you know, it used to happen a bunch. Now it doesn't get... But if I do, I immediately do this little thing inside where I say, you know, the point isn't to teach Jack Cornfield because that's what makes me nervous. How am I going to look? Am I worthy? Am I not? The point is to teach the Dharma. And I'll teach the Dharma as best as I can and then people will take it and as the Buddha said, now it's time for you to see, do as you see fit. So you are the pujaris of the temple. You are the, the stewards and the shepherds um, and the carriers of the lamp so that others can find it. So a couple more things, very briefly, to try and finish up. Um, I want to tell you the rituals that we didn't do, just for the fun of it, okay? And then we'll do one tiny one to end. Um, to deepen the room, because you can feel the room's already different, having these candles and this aspiration and your words. The next step that we were going to do, I have a basket of stones here, and I was going to ask you to write on the paper, on a piece of paper, um, the sorrows that you carry. The names of people that you know who are sick with cancer or whatever illness they have, the, you know, the, the people with addiction, the, 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 the family members, the community members, the places in the world, you know, if you carry Fallujah or you carry Sudan or you carry uh, whatever it happens to be in your heart and it's there, to write those down. And then we were going to place a stone with it and pass it from hand to hand so somebody else would carry the measure of sorrows that you have in their hands and then another would carry and put them on the back altar and do a compassion chant. And that would change the room again because it would give permission for all the tears and all the reasons that people come to the Dharma. And people come for joy and happiness, but they also come for healing. And you're going to get a lot of that. You're going to get people whose lives are broken or whose someone has died or who are, you know, frightened or lost a lot or need healing. And that would have just offered for us the place to see it's not them, it's all of us that we carry. So that was another ritual we were going to do. Then we were going to make, you can see how ambitious I got, <laughs> we were going to make blessing or protection cords, which many of you have done at the ends of retreats, but I was going to instruct you on in how to do it, and then you were going to do it for each other. Um, and we may do that before the week is out, something like that. We might do one or two of these other rituals to punctuate the week and teach you how to do this because again, part of this is the role of the pujari is the tender. And there's also a little stagecraft to it, quite honestly. That you, if the room is cold, you want to warm it up. Literally, you check the thermostat. If the chairs aren't right, you move them. You are the one who makes the temple, the sacred space, convivial to the hearts and bodies of the people who come. Um, and then the last thing. So that was protection cords and the different ways of doing blessing. Um, is to do the blessing of um, holy water, um, which we don't tend to do a lot, but the monks and nuns used to do it all the time. Ajahn Chah did it in the hot season. He said, people get so hot, they just like to get, have a bath, you know, and sprinkle. And he would sort of make fun of it sometimes while he did it. But at other times, if someone was sick or someone had lost a child or someone was... Um, you know, in some great suffering, even though it seemed like an outer ritual, if you will, he also knew that those blessings were really important to people. 
And so while you are singing and putting your aspirations and the names of your teachers, along with all this great lineage of teachers whose pictures you see, the, you know, the feminine and masculine of the Dharma in, in, all, in all of our, our lineage, um, there, were, there are on the altar th five bowls of water um, with flower petals in them, um, wrapped with a white cord. And the white cord is the cord that um, throughout um, Buddhist Asia and much of Asia is a symbol of the sacred thread that unites all things. So it's used in all kinds of ceremonies and rituals and blessing cords. Um, and a Brahmin priest will wear a white thread around their body for the whole of their adult life to show that they live within the, the weave of that which is sacred wherever they go. Um, and this blessing cord, which is used in the temples and monasteries, went around these bowls and through the hand of the Buddha and through the hand of Prajnaparamita, the mother of the Buddha, Buddha and his mom, basically. She is the embodiment of the, of, of the sacred feminine and of the ground of wisdom from which the awakening of the Buddha comes and around these other bowls. And if my compatriots here, Larry and Tanisara, James, Gina, and Eugene would each um, stand up and grab one of those wands, one for each. And then if I could have five volunteers who would stand up and help and come up front. Just one's up front, that's good, one, two, three. And each of you take a bowl. And there's three bowls over there and two here. And carry them, um, hold the bowl. You are the, the bowl carrier for your, for your teachers. And so as a way just to end this, this um, afternoon session, um, I know that uh, these teachers, Larry and Gina and Eugene and Tanissa especially, have been working for two years to have this community Dharma leader group, maybe they said this to you, come, come to fruition. Um, and in many ways, it's, it's part of the love of their life. There are, you know, there's just a tremendous joy and satisfaction uh, in it. Um, and to see you finally gathered in person, they want to bless you. They want you to succeed. They want your Dharma voice and the light that you carry and the aspiration that you placed on here and the teachers who've brought beautiful things to you to now flow through you and expand out into the world and bless and benefit beings so that you become the medicine for the healing and that you offer the bridge that crosses over the flood and that you offer the, the resting place for the weary heart um, and you offer the, the fragrance, the perfume of, of the dharma of virtue that spreads far and wide. So if if, as we finish this, this little piece, um, again, you're getting the feel for ritual, and we'll talk about how you do it more later. If we could go back to the beautiful chant that we were doing and chant it as a group, um, they are going to walk around with their... Um, uh, <laughs> serious blessing wands um, and do the water thing. Um, and... Uh, 
So each of you follow one of them or be there for it. Um, and bless you while we chant. Let's just start the chant first. Do it right, you guys, you know. Use plenty of water. It's okay. Make sure you get everybody, get them twice. And they're blessing you. You know. Thank you. <laughs> and one of the things that made being with Ajahn Chah as a teacher so wonderful, like being with the Dalai Lama, is that there was a sense of um, exuberance and joy and delight, not that they couldn't be and can be very serious, and um, profound as carriers of wisdom, 
but it's also done with a light heart. And people feel it. And they go, oh, I want to be around this. It's like some, some delicious fla- flavor and fragrance. And so the blessings was playful, but also very genuine. I think they really, really wanted to bless you um, and, and love doing it. Um, and so very genuine and at the same time also lighthearted. Um, and may your spirit be light and easy and free as well as to carry the lamp and the flame of the Dharma in a deep and beautiful way for yourself and for the benefit of all beings. So thank you. And we'll take just a 10-minute break, short break, and then we'll come back. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.